Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The world's biggest economies are finally getting serious about going green. But unleashing a clean energy boom will require more than low costs and good intentions. You're listening to Money Talks on Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy and the world of business. I'm Rachna Shanbog, finance editor at The Economist, and also on today's show. America and China dominate the new geopolitics of global business. How did Europe get left in the dust? If you look at the what I think of as the entrepreneurial failure in Europe, it goes way beyond just tech. And why the ghostly storefronts of Fifth Avenue could stay empty long after New York's shoppers return. You know, on this block alone, I think that there are one, two, maybe eight shops for lease, and there are probably only about 20 stores on this block. First, as the world economy jolts back to life, price spikes and shortages are affecting everything from the supply of chips from Taiwan to the cost of a croissant in Paris. But there's one kind of bottleneck that deserves special attention. The problems threatening to slow down the green energy revolution. Over the past decade, the green technologies vital to helping countries meet their emissions targets have finally become cheap enough to be deployed at scale. The costs of solar energy and the batteries to store it have both fallen by more than 80%. But just because all this stuff is getting more affordable doesn't mean the world has the capacity to build it yet. The good news is the clean energy revolution is really getting going after many years of uh, lack of policy, lack of direction, even denialism. We're seeing a massive interest in clean technologies. Vijay Vaitisvaran is The Economist's global energy and climate innovation editor. The problem is, as companies are starting to invest, what we're seeing is tremendous bottlenecks. That is, supply chain shortages, uh, rare earth minerals or other battery inputs, even land, for example, for renewables. We have to fix these bottlenecks if we want to achieve uh, the goals of the Paris Accord and some of the other more ambitious goals on climate change. This year, we've seen record prices for some minerals and metals, notably copper, and talk of a commodity supercycle. How much of the bottlenecks that you're describing, Vijay, are down to simple limits on the supply of these materials? There's no doubt that we're going to have some short-term scarcity of different inputs. For example, lithium that goes into lithium-ion batteries or cobalt, some of the things that go into electric cars. There are clearly shortages at the moment. But I think it's important to step back and recognize that there is no long-term scarcity of the vital ingredients. It's really a question of supply. And what I mean by that is uh, many of these minerals and metals are widely dispersed in the earth, even though at the moment, a lot of production, for example, is concentrated in China. That is a particular bottleneck. Much of this arises from underinvestment in other parts of the world. Typically, price signals, prices going up, should give the signal to markets to invest in in other places, be that Australia, Canada, US, Greenland, or other parts of the world where we find some of these other essential ingredients. But 
local regulations and the things that markets look for for long-term certainty will play a role in whether that investment actually gets done. But as important as the resources needed to build renewable power stations, land matters as well. And you mentioned land earlier. Um, A lot of listeners might think that the quantity of land is fixed. But do you see this as a problem? You're quite right that it's often claimed that there's a scarcity of land. And look, in some places, uh, particularly in Western Europe, for example, parts of Asia, of course, uh, you have very dense cities and there may be some uh, question of land availability. But broadly speaking, there is not a problem of land scarcity. Uh, Just take America for an example. A recent estimate said that if solar energy were to be scaled up to its full potential to meet the Paris Accord goals, that is a dramatic escalation, seven times or more of where we are today, that it might take up 2% of America's land. Now, that sounds shocking. But when you think about uh, golf courses take up 1% of America's land already. And unlike golf courses, wind farms can happily coexist with the cattle grazing or with farming and so on. So it's really not such an intimidating or limiting factor in many parts of the world. On the other hand, the willingness of people to allow land to be used, whether it's because the Kennedys in America, the political clan, doesn't like their views spoiled from their home in Nantucket and Martha's Vineyard, or whether it's local economic interests, red tape at the county board. These are genuine problems But scarcity isn't really the right way to think about it. Now, we've talked about metals and we've talked about land needed for the green transition. Um, Huge infusions of capital are obviously also really important. How encouraged are you that enough money is being spent and it's going to make it to the right places? Look, at first blush, there is another bottleneck in capital. If we were to look at most of the leading forecasters, we can take the International Energy Agency and its recent uh, provocative forecast on how to get to net zero carbon by 2050. They predict we need to see a dramatic escalation. Flows of money into clean energy have to perhaps triple in coming years. A trillion to $2 trillion a year must go into this area. And it sounds absolutely staggering given how much lower the sums have been in the past. Hang on a minute. The energy industry spent $10 trillion in the last five years investing in energy infrastructure. Now, a lot of it was dirty, admittedly, but the point is that capital is there. Even during the pandemic, it increased 10%, according to the IEA. So the challenge is to motivate the energy industry to shift its spending from existing incumbent and dirty forms of infrastructure towards the clean stuff. And of course, I'm not even talking about the much bigger tidal wave of investment money coming into ESG, which is the green investing movement, which is seeing enormous flows of funds, and they're desperately trying to find places to put their money. So I don't think a shortage of capital is the problem. If they have a confidence of a big market reward for clean tech, then you'll see even venture capital will come flooding in in a big way. Does that argument carry across to emerging markets as well, or is the picture there a little different? It is more complicated in emerging markets. You're quite right to highlight that. We've written on our cover a few months ago about how uh, emerging markets, uh, not only China and India, but others too, pose a particular climate challenge because of coal, because of incumbent infrastructure. They're highly reliant on dirty energy. But there's another part of the problem that is, in order to flip the switch from investments in coal to cleaner energy, you need to have policy frameworks that reward investors in those markets, incentives for clean energy investments. The flows of capital to clean energy are going overwhelmingly to just a handful of countries. As an example, in 2019, India attracted just $8 billion in clean energy finance, less than a tenth of what China got and a sixth of America's, according to Bloomberg. Other middle-income and poor countries saw even less investment. 
And foreign investors tend to think of these markets as having much higher risk premia. And so there are mechanisms we can think of that the World Bank or other international financial institutions could provide some form of loan guarantee or other ways to encourage them to have the confidence to invest in these markets, just as the regulatory frameworks are also being strengthened. And that would be a good thing for the world, not just for those countries. And more broadly, Vijay, how do you think governments should be trying to ease these bottlenecks, both in emerging markets, but also in in rich countries? Well, let's start with what they should not do. We're already seeing signs of the wrong kinds of responses. Price controls, for example, China has mooted that it may put some price controls on some of its minerals. Uh, We're seeing protectionism in different parts of the world, both in Europe and America. We're seeing uh, nativist or economic nationalist policies of buy in America proposals are embedded into Joe Biden's uh, proposals for climate at the moment, for example. Uh, And I think long term, this would actually balkanize global markets, lead to less investment, probably lead to higher costs. Instead, if we were to both think about the carbon signal could be a global carbon price, for example. Uh, Leading CEOs uh, are advocating this week to the G7 summit that they want a global carbon price with linkages across markets to send a powerful signal to the market, something that we've advocated as well. We want to see some of those regulations and red tape, oftentimes uh, well-intentioned, even projects that have bipartisan support in the US or or multi-party support in Europe, they fall apart because of local concerns, nimbyism, red tape. And so we need to have a little bit more of joined up thinking in government and a rethink of the way that approvals are given to these projects so that they can get done. So Vijay, is there essentially a good news story here that there are no fixed constraints, that policy makes the problem soluble? Is that the right way to think about this? I think that's the right frame. I I tend to be an optimist. So I think that we can solve these problems. However, I'm not Pollyannish. I don't think it's preordained that we'll solve these problems, right? We still have to do the hard work. 20 years after this newspaper acknowledged the reality of climate change and argued for carbon pricing and a, a transition towards clean energy, the world has done very little. So I don't think we can afford another three to five years of hemming and hawing and getting policy wrong, because at long last, we now see that investors, ordinary people, even uh, energy companies are ready to plow into this area. But we do need to sweep these bottlenecks out of the way. Otherwise, the green energy revolution will be throttled. Vijay Vaitisvaran, thank you very much. Thank you. To find out more about these problems and how they can be solved, I really recommend reading Vijay's reporting, together with Charlotte Howard, our energy and commodities editor, who you may also know from our sister podcast, Checks and Balance. You can read their brilliant work in the new issue that goes live on economist.com tomorrow, Thursday, June the 10th. Don't miss it. There's a special offer for listeners at economist.com slash podcast offer, and the link is in the notes for this episode. Next, if I asked you to list some of the world's most valuable companies, Apple, Amazon or Alibaba probably come to mind. And that's just starting with the A's. Chances are that Nokia, Vodafone, Nestle, even BP almost certainly won't. Yet all those European firms were world-leading companies not too long ago. Europe's fall from the top tier of global business has been dramatic. Of the world's listed firms set up in the past half-century, 43 are now worth over $100 billion. 27 of those 43 are American. 10 were founded in China. Only one was born in Europe. So what happened? 
Europe looked like it was the future once. Stan Pinyal writes about European business for The Economist and is one of the authors of our cover story on the new corporate geopolitics. At the beginning of the 21st century, so not that long ago, 41 of the world's 100 most valuable companies were based in Europe. And now it's down to 15. I should say that calculation includes uh, the UK, Switzerland, Norway, and all the countries of the EU. So it's a continent-wide thing. And it's also not just market cap. Um, A lot of people say, you know, the US is in the middle of a bubble and therefore their companies look bigger than they, they might be otherwise. But in fact, pretty much every measure you look at, uh, whether it's profits, whether it's revenues or whatever, Europe has just shrunk dramatically in the last 20 years. And what used to be a place that built companies that went to conquer the world is now primarily seen as a market for foreign companies to come in and do business. Stan, what went so wrong for Europe? and Why has it fallen behind so drastically? Well, a lot of people point to the European economy, which has done less well in the last 20 years than America, notably China. But actually, that's only one factor. If you look compared to 2000, Europe has added roughly as much GDP in absolute terms as the US. Really, the main factor is what firms themselves have done. So if you look at firms in the same industries, By and large, American ones have done better than European ones. There are lots of exceptions to this rule, but by and large, you know, Nike of America has done better than Adidas of Germany, or JP Morgan has done better than European banks, or Walmart has done better than Tesco. Uh, That's one factor. The second one is big European businesses are in industries that have not grown very much. So if you look in the year 2000 where Europe kind of did well, it was things like insurance, utilities or telecoms. And those industries haven't really gone anywhere. And what America was good at was things like e-commerce and technology, which obviously went, went gangbusters. And that links to the third point, which is Europe has an abysmal record in creating new firms. So if you look at the big firms in the world now, the big firms in the US, a lot of them are quite new. It's the likes of you know Google and Amazon and Netflix and Tesla. Uh, and Europe just doesn't really have many of these at all. The Unilevers of this world or the LVMHs, Louis Vuitton or the Ikeas, a lot of them have been around for for an awful long time. These days, it's quite common to worry about the impact that big business might have, say, on competition and on prices. Why does it matter that Europe has fewer of them? Yeah, and I mean, a, a lot of people in Europe are much happier with the idea, for example, of a German Mittelstand, you know, a kind of dense network of medium and quite quite large companies. But big businesses matter for two reasons. Uh, the first one is they often sit at the frontier of innovation. Big businesses uh, invest disproportionately in research and development, and that uh, has lots of positive impacts, not just for those businesses, but for consumers and the broader economy. And the second one, which I think is the most important, is the presence of big businesses is indicative of an ecosystem that allows small companies to become medium-sized companies and medium-sized companies to become big companies. It means that all businesses are able to attract capital, they're able to dislodge incumbents, and they're able to meet their potential. And that's why we don't necessarily celebrate the presence of big businesses. We celebrate the presence of the ability to create those businesses. So what are America and indeed China doing that Europe isn't? Well, if you speak to Europeans, they will tend to reduce the problem to tech. And they'll say, in the US, it's all about Silicon Valley. And Silicon Valley was this, this wonderful nexus of uh, you know, venture capital and research and entrepreneurs. And China had equivalent policies that 
a lot of the time involves shutting out U.S. firms for the Chinese firms to to grow. I think that's a bit reductive, actually. Uh, if you look at the what I think of as the entrepreneurial failure in Europe, it goes way beyond just tech. What else matters here is culture a factor. Well, probably, right? This is kind of more tricky territory to get into. But if you look at Chinese companies, the tycoons boast of their what they call the 996 work ethic. So 9 a.m. to 9 p.m., six days a week. Uh, in France, where I work, the working week is mandated at 35 hours. The U.S. has a big culture of repeat entrepreneurialism, for example. A lot of early venture capital comes from entrepreneurs. That that kind of thing doesn't really happen as much in Europe, though they are they are trying to encourage it. So yeah, certainly cultural factors are are going to be a, a very big and quite difficult to untangle element of this. To what extent is it fair to compare the continent to these two vast countries, America and China? I mean, surely there are sort of linguistic and cultural differences. Well, in theory, it should be fair, right? The European Union is a single market that stretches across the EU 27, though obviously no longer Britain, and also in practice to places like like Switzerland and Norway. Uh, So it should be fair, but in practice, uh, it's not, right? It is still vastly more complicated for a bank, for example, to do business uh, in Finland if you're a Portuguese bank compared to an American bank working across state borders. The single market works very well in goods. It was kind of set up really for kind of coal, steel, cars, that kind of thing. It doesn't work so well with services. The problem is, of course, that the global economy increasingly is about services. And do you think European policymakers realise there's a problem here? How are they responding to this relative decline? The European reaction to falling behind often is to do more of what it has done until now. So what we have seen in the last few years is a resurgence in, in dirigiste policies. So guiding industry towards making certain types of investment decisions, funneling public money, not just towards research, but towards specific factories, specific technologies. And actually that trend has been turbocharged as a result of the pandemic. And to some people, it looks a little bit like a this picking winners trend uh, that we thought we'd abolished in the 1970s, but that has really made a comeback. What then should Europe be doing to, to slow or even reverse this decline? So clearly this is a long-term issue and solutions to this aren't going to be found overnight. Uh, our focus is on what should happen at the policymaking level uh, to improve Europe's competitiveness globally. And there, kind of three things stand out. The first one is scale. So if you're a US or a Chinese company, you have that. In Europe, you don't have that. The obvious solution to that is a better single market. Uh, Europe knows that the single market is incomplete. It has fallen off the list of political priorities. It should go back in there. The second one is innovation. Europe still does quite well in innovation. It has world-class universities, but there is insufficient transfer of knowledge between the ivory tower and the factory floor. And the third one is governance, culture. Can companies operate in an environment in which they can make sensible investment decisions? So where their investors and their management can set good priorities and not politicians. That's the question that I think is is most worrisome now with the kind of re-emergence of this dirigisme trend in the last few years. Stan Peniel, thank you very much. Thank you. 
You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. And finally, the city that never sleeps is waking up. Throngs of shoppers are returning to New York streets, now also crowded with tables of outdoor diners enjoying the beginning of a steamy New York summer. The ice latte, regular milk, okay? Yeah, it's perfect. Uh, how would you like the ice? Over easy. People are returning, but many businesses aren't. Our Wall Street correspondent, Alice Fullwood, took a walk through downtown Manhattan to find out more. I'm standing on the corner of Bleecker Street and 8th Avenue. I've just walked down from the 14th Street and 8th Ave subway. It is a sweltering day in New York City, sort of 32 degrees Celsius. And it's a Tuesday lunchtime, so lots of sort of young families out, a few people doing out doing their shopping, but it's not sort of rammed like it would be on the weekend here. Uh, so I'm just going to walk down Bleecker Street and tell you what I see. Already on the way from the subway, I spy six-ish retail vacancies. I see another one across the street from this playground. I'm in the West Village, sort of the heart of the West Village, which is one of New York's sort of most desirable, most beautiful neighborhoods, classic New York fire escape facade, lots and lots of leafy green trees. I'm just about to walk past the Magnolia Bakery, the cast of Sex and the City ate cupcakes in front of it. Um, several big bank CEOs live here, lots of celebrities like Timothy Chalamet. It's where Taylor Swift lived when she was based in New York. So I've just walked past the bakery and I'm now on the corner of Belika Street and Perry Street and already I can see three vacancies on the next block down. There's an enormous garbage truck going by right now. But you know, as I walk this block alone, I think that there are one, two maybe eight shops for lease and there are probably only about 20 stores on this block um, you know they're all retail spaces they all look like they used to be boutiques a huge number of them don't have tenants Alice shuttered shops have been a blight on New York City for some time how much worse has the pandemic made the problem if you take a sample of neighbourhoods like the West Village, uh, Tribeca in downtown Manhattan, the Upper West Side, Times Square, for example, all of these neighbourhoods, vacancies below 5% in the years before the global financial crisis. And they have risen steadily over the past decade. So in all of those neighbourhoods, vacancies have risen closer to 8% to 10%, even before the pandemic. And then obviously the pandemic was this massive shock to small businesses, uh, even with things like moratoriums on commercial evictions, which are still in place. They've been extended to the end of August. 
a lot of business owners cut their losses and and, and shut down. So vacancies have climbed above 10% now in a lot of them, closer to 12 or 13%. Now, an economist would say rents will fall during a downturn and that will help tenants match with landlords. Is that happening here? And if so, why are there still concerns that these properties won't find new tenants? So rents have definitely fallen. The average across New York, uh, according to sort of various real estate bodies, is around a 6% drop on 2019. But in some of the most desirable neighbourhoods, the falls have been pretty extreme. So for example, in Tribeca, they've fallen by as much as 20%. And you've seen sort of similar double digit falls in other swanky neighbourhoods in Manhattan as well. But even though rents have fallen, that's not necessarily enough to, as economists would say, make the market clear. Um, And there are some structural reasons why that is. Tell us about them. This is a particular problem for commercial spaces and retail spaces. They'll take a sort of empty space and they'll have to turn that into a restaurant or turn it into a bank branch or a grocery store. And because they have to make such significant capital investments when they sort of first move into a property, they want to know that they'll be able to be there for a long time. So retail leases tend to span decades rather than years. And this can create this sort of interesting mismatch in incentives during a downturn. Because if rents have fallen, you know, landlords don't really want to sign like a 10 or 20 year lease with a very low rent during a potentially cyclical downturn. But tenants have no interest in signing a short lease because if they do and they put all these capital investments in, then they'll essentially be over a barrel when the lease renewal comes up because the landlord will know that they have this big disincentive to move. So we've talked a lot on Money Talks about how the pandemic is changing the behaviour of consumers. How certain is it that the demand for the same sorts of shops will return to the same places? You know, this question kind of gets the two things that are going on in New York. And one is that, you know, even before the pandemic, one of the big reasons that people would point to for why they thought vacancies were going up is the sort of Amazon effect, the rise of online shopping. And what you would hear from a lot of sort of landlords or, or real estate investors is that they, they wanted Amazon proof tenants. So things like nail salons, coffee shops, salad bars, and they didn't want things like traditional sort of retailers, like boutiques, grocery stores, etc. Because those are the types of businesses that that might go bust. And the pandemic has accelerated all of these e-commerce trends. So if anything, right now, you'd expect landlords to be perhaps even choosier about the types of tenants that they will let rent their space, you know, wait for a salad bar or a nail salon. But even if landlords did want to attract tenants, they don't have that much freedom to reduce rents, do they? So sometimes landlords won't be able to drop their rents easily without incurring potential problems with their financing. So a lot of landlords who own commercial spaces have taken out mortgages or loans to finance the purchase of that building. And these can tie their hands in some ways. Um, Some of those loans will include covenants. And what these covenants say is essentially that the loan amount outstanding can't exceed some multiple of the rent. The lender wants to know that the rent will at least cover the interest payment that the landlord has to make on the loan. And if the rents fall, sometimes the lenders will ask landlords to reduce the loan amount. So what that means is that they basically have to pay off some of the loan early. They have to sort of find some cash. And some landlords might prefer just to leave the space empty. Are there ways in which 
authorities in the city are trying to tackle the problem of, of empty shop fronts? And what sorts of solutions or incentives are being talked about? You know, a lot of the suggestions are things like vacancy taxes, potentially tax breaks to help small businesses cope with high rents, etc. A lot of those might not necessarily sort of directly fix the problem, could cause some unintended consequences. But there are some potentially good solutions to some of the problems. For example, Scott Stringer, who's now a candidate for mayor, who did a study on vacancies in New York in 2019, he found that things like the wait times to get permits, like alcohol permits or permits to sort of renovate spaces, that they had all increased quite significantly over the past decade. So it's possible that, you know, reducing that red tape could have an impact here. Obviously, the sort of big things we've talked about in terms of when there's a downturn, the mismatch in incentives. It's difficult to see how those problems can be tackled directly by policies. You just potentially need to let the system sort of work it out, find that rent that is appropriate. And, you know, if landlords overpaid for buildings, they will eventually go bust. But those things all take time, especially with the moratoriums um, on repayment and evictions and things. One thing is sort of very clear from walking around New York at the moment, which is that the demand for bars, restaurants, all of these businesses very much has returned. And that is the first step in the city coming back to life. Alice Forward, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. If you like the show, please do take a moment to leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It helps us immensely. The producer is Amika Shortino-Nolan. I'm Rachna Shanbog, And in London, this is The Economist. <laughs>